we're going to record the intro later. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't do like my, like <laughs> I'm Sunday. Like I got like five hours of sleep. I feel like shit. I've had too much cold brew. Um, again, as yeah, always, I've same. Had barely anything to eat. One of these days I'm going to record an episode with you and I'm actually going to feel good. I don't know when that's going to happen, but like, that's <laughs> why I then we thrive on like the sort of half burned out feeling. Yeah, exactly. And I just hope like the <laughs> adrenaline of knowing that people can like shit on me for misspeaking will carry me through this recording <laughs> session. So we're talking about, this is our third in the last series. So we're going through his democratic discourse and decline portion, which is the second part of the book. And where John and I wanted to start was talking about this idea of like third places, which seems to be like local businesses, basically, um, specifically like bars and coffee shops and what have you. And how those, I mean, he uses New York as I think the microcosm for this, but that this is where you get initiated in like being in a neighborhood and learning what adults do when you're a kid. And I think his general point is that there is so much of learning about how to be in a society that can't and shouldn't be a part of school that would come from these types of Yeah, there's a good point that G.K. Chesterton makes, which is that the... I don't remember how he played it exactly, but basically like the man of the cosmopolitan urban society is able to form what Lash and maybe other people, uh, Rorty would term like, uh, like private associations or something to that effect, like clubs, yeah. private clubs. And Chesterton says that these people are able to basically um, seal themselves in with other people of their kind and never really have to experience anything else. And so he finds that world, which he equates with the city, which we don't necessarily have to with Lash would argue maybe against that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's an infinitely small world because all you see are sort of like kind of half reflections of what you already are. Whereas the village requires you to live with people who are nothing like you and you have to get along with them and you have to talk to them and you don't have to like them, but they're going to be a part of your universe but your universe is going to be so peopled by difference because you don't have a choice. You, oh, yeah. you know, you're just a part of this community. And <laughs> the, the amount of times I've like, I, I was sitting at like red eye in Tallahassee <laughs> and like someone, I just like fucking could not stand, but knew like walked <laughs> up and was like, Hey, and I was just like, there goes the next three hours of my day off. <laughs> like, God damn it. Like you have to learn how to do that. You have to learn how to bear that gracefully. You know, you can't have a life without, uncomfortable moments totally and i think that it you have a bigger life as a result of that even if you don't appreciate it at the time or you think that it would be better if everyone just agreed with you and you had only similar friends i think that you have a much bigger life and a much bigger universe even in a small setting like that because of the way that that creates bonds that are not on the basis of like opinion having um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just can't and he So he says that like this is how the neighborhood functioned and you had bars and things like that, which the neighborhood had places where everyone who lived there could come together and interact. And these would be places where you learned like social graces and virtues of however, of whatever particular stripe, you know, was Mm -hmm. the going, um, the prevailing way of your little place. So this is like you were saying, you, you learn a lot here. You learn how to be a person how to be acceptable to the, like you could say the communal elders or just the people who are sort of like older than you around before you, who you looked up to. 
like that's sort of how you participated in your like subjectivity formation yeah i mean when i was a kid in like seventh grade i got a job working at the local comic shop so i couldn't legally be employed yet i used to cut gym class because it was the last thing of the day and so i would like very slowly like a centimeter at a time take off my uniform and put on my gym uniform and then like once people were finally leaving i would like run back into the locker room you know put my catholic school uniform on again and like sprint down to the comic shop and work and i worked there weekends too and you know that taught me a lot about how to like be in the world you know and it put me in like weird situations with like adults like having a fucking 40 year old dude like cry to you in a comic shop about his divorce when you're like 16 it's a very real moment you know and that shit would happen in reading this third places thing i remember it's moved the location now but it used to be near the green line in oak park which was like on the train line of the metro that i would take i mean the metro is not a part of the green line but um they run parallel outside of chicago for a little while and it was called Val's Halla, which was this record shop that had been there forever. It smelled like dog piss. And there was these two older dudes there, James and Shane. And every Friday night for a while, or most Fridays when I didn't have something to do, I would get off a stop early, walk down there, and like talk about records and music with these dudes who were like full-ass adults. And I would like learn about adult life and like rock music history and like all of these things. And when I look back on that, like that feeling of like freedom, but also of the world being both bigger and safer than you and there being safer than you think. And there being like people outside of your family who gave a shit about you and were like interested in sharing things with you was deeply formative to me. I mean, I did yeah. think that I learned by implication a type of civic virtue from that. Yeah, we had a place that I used to go. It was like a land center internet cafe type place. And hell yeah, dude. We would go. This was in high school. I found yeah. this playing place. total annihilation like, on like <laughs> a land network. <laughs> it was actually interesting, not to be too autobiographical, but like kind of in the middle of a weird time for me where I basically, you know, was going through identity crises because like, it, you don't really know like what you're supposed to be personality wise yet when you're in middle school. So you're just mm -hmm. like weird and maybe you decide to adopt like pretty horrible, strange ways of acting and being. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, kind of as a survival mechanism because school is so like horrible and you're just trying to get through it, you know, sometimes. But so I end up going into high school and like moving and meeting a bunch of kids who were sort of like metalheads. So I just became a metalhead and started going to the land center with them and oh God, there were so many people there. Like some guy who like may or may not have been like ex special forces. Mm -hmm. He was massive. He was like the, one of the biggest people I've ever seen. He did like live action steel role play where you like beat each other up in armor with blunt steel swords and like, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, he was an interesting guy and there were like musicians, some pretty interesting, like, older people like adults with like really cool musical projects who would come hang out and play games and stuff and there's like a whole network around this place of like different interesting people who were all about a decade older than me and just like talking to them hanging out with them and like yeah i never ended up in like bad trouble or anything but i watched them like take care of other people who needed help mm -hmm. you know just because they were like a part of the circle and it was definitely like 
you know, an important part of life for me to have been plugged into that and to kind of start to learn, like, you know, I feel like that's when my identity sort of started to solidify and I kind Mm of more or less like became the person that I have been ever since, like right around, I would say this time and like age 16, you know, obviously lots of things still change, but, and I think in large part it was due to being inducted into like real social situations like that with some duration and like responsibility and inherent in these relationships where like people are helping you and taking care of you and like teaching you stuff just because everyone's around each other and yeah, it's like and also fun to talk about stuff. Yeah. And also sometimes leading you astray and like, yeah. you have to figure that out. Cause like that happens yeah. too. Like the first time I ever got drunk was at that comic shop job. <laughs> like I fucking drank a 40 before work with my coworker. I was like 15 or something like that. And it ruled. Yeah. But like, you know, it, that dude over a period of time, it became clear to me, it was like not somebody I could trust, but I only would have known that by like fucking around, you know? And also like, it's important to be exposed to that. So like, why are John and I interested in this? Dis- like biogra- biographical stuff aside, uh, COVID. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's been very uh, sad to see frankly, a lot of this stuff get destroyed in what I think some people are fancifully calling the uprising of 2020. I don't know if any of that would qualify. Um, Though certainly a lot of the angst real and understandable, Um, maybe less so in Portland or in the chess shop where they murdered. But um, I think not just the, the, the riots or what have you, but also what the virus has done to people's ability to be out in public with each other. A lot of these, frankly, like businesses or places, you know, whatever they are, are getting really hammered um, and there are tons of closures and I'm not, as you guys know from our entrepreneur brain episode, like a small business, like fetishist, right? Like that's not necessarily my perspective here, but I think you're lying to yourself if you think that this isn't devastating for communities and you can do your whole thing about like, well, you understand the property relations that go on. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what are you and your cadre about to pull off the revolution? Like, no, you're not. And like, this, these are people's lives and they're how our communities held together. And it's tragic to see that this stuff is, is shutting down. And it goes to the point that COVID is again, not unique in itself. It's unique in uh, an accelerant for trends that were already happening. You know? Yeah. Like that was probably some of the like saddest times in my life where the land center closing like a couple years later and just realizing that like that community was gone and I was never Mm going to talk to most of those people ever again, which has been true. Like, I don't know where most of them are anymore. Um, you know, losing the like first forum that I posted on for like seven years, just sort of like dying one day. And now like most of those people are gone, never going to talk to them again later on, like different coffee shops, different communities that sort of coagulate, you know, and stuff like that, just losing those, those are gone, never going to see those people again. Like a succession of experiences where you realize that communities of people who can meet are not easily come by. It is extremely difficult to find one that you can actually integrate into and be a part of and find yourself feeling you know, like not just that it's nice to hang out, but that you sort of want to be responsible for it. And, you know, so losing that, it's not just like, oh, we'll go reform it, you know, just go move to Seattle or something and just find it again. Like every time you lose that, it's irreplaceable. 
Mm-hmm. And you're just doing your best to find something else, but you're never going to get what you lost back. And I kind of ended up in a situation where I didn't have anything like that anymore when COVID started, but it's difficult to imagine somebody experience like who maybe was integrated and do a few things like that, suddenly losing all of them overnight, you know? Yeah. I mean, I live in Los Angeles and there's plenty of cool shit here or whatever. I've, you know, I've moved enough, enough times um, you know, I've lived all over the United States uh, as an adult. That one thing I've learned is that like you, it gets harder and harder to rebuild a community when it disappears, either because you move or the community falls apart. And again, like this isn't just like oh, it feels good and there's fellow feeling of being with people. That's nice. It's that it teaches you how to be. You know, you learn how to have arguments with people that you know you're going to have to see again, like in person. Yeah. You know, it teaches you how to do that. You make mistakes and see how people forgive you for them. You know how to mourn when someone dies. I remember this guy, Mickey, who's a regular at the comic shop. I fucking hated that dude. And then after a while, he started to like change because eventually all of us put enough social pressure on him where we were just like, you need to like fucking be less annoying. Like it is very difficult to be around you. And he started to turn his life around. And then on his 18th birthday, some drifter who bought them all booze fucking shot him in the face in his basement and killed him. I remember when his older brother came to the comic shop to buy like a seller's guide for all of Mickey's like figurines and comics and to clear out uh, his holds folder, which is where we put your comics and stuff like that when they, it's really sad, you know, and it, yeah. I, I learned a lot from that. We were all sad. Even those of us who were like fucking furious with him a lot of the time, we were all really heartbroken by that. Those are those classic moments where it's like, just because we didn't like the guy didn't mean we didn't like the guy. You know what I mean? There's a lot of, like that is a feature of these ways of, I think, like relating to each other. I feel like I would be probably unbearable if I didn't have a bunch of people around me who didn't really like the way I was when I met them and didn't (laughs) help me see why that was annoying to them so that I could be, you know, it's one of the things that you see when you read like the last psychiatrist, one of the things he often hones in on is people who aren't really allowed to be like challenged or negated in some way as they're coming of age and developing, like they, like that's one of the processes towards his definition of pathological narcissism is like, you're never really able to like see your limits or your failures um, as a person, which you will inevitably possess. And, you know, I'm definitely like, I'm grateful that I was able to, in some small way, experience that because I think that like we're saying, part of it is that like, it makes life feel kind of a lot more worthwhile when you can live this way, but also it has ramifications, many layers out from that, which is like, if you have a bunch of, you know, like, if a bunch of people are basically operating in a way where they don't really experience their own limits or shortcomings, it's sort of easy to see how that becomes quickly, like very problematic for an idea of civil discourse, like civic discourse. Um, And I think that's sort of where we're at and what Lash was one of the people who started to, you know, bring this up as a problem in a really specific way. Yeah. It's not even that the standards that we're talking. So, let me say this to bring this back to some of the stuff he says earlier where he's talking about there's a atrophy of common standards or a disappearance of them. It's not even that those common standards would be set in stone. 
it's that through this type of small d democratic civil engagement with each other, that those standards get negotiated and renegotiated and that people can transcend out of themselves to understand how to hold a group together. That's what's powerful there. You know, in, when he's talking about Walter Lippmann, anytime this guy gets brought up and anytime I read Walter Lippmann, I am like convinced of the platonic turn of the 20th century to separating rulers and producers and the idea of like there being these uh, truths that can just be implemented from above and that they need to be because you can't trust the masses because they'll do a, they'll do a dang totalitarianism on you. (laughs) But there's the ethic that like, and this comes directly from Pericles in the Athenian democracy that's in response to this. And you can find one of the best explications of it in the platonic dialogue Protagoras, where Protagoras says, you know, what's great about Athens is that these people from all parts of the polis can come together. And because they have a common virtue, they can help each other figure out what the best thing to do is. You can talk to the shipbuilders, you can talk to the merchants, you know, you can talk to the hoplites or what have you and aggregate um, decisions on that. Does it mean it's going to always be right? No, but it does mean that there is a type of fellow feeling. And let's say, uh, you know, we've used this phrase before, I think in this direct series, like a, a kind of social technology for how to engage with each other at this level. And these Lippmann people and others, you know, this is Schumpeter, this is um, Hayek, uh, (laughs) perhaps especially, uh, are very skeptical about the human ability to do this. And so much of what we're living through begins before neoliberalism and is about protecting capital from democracy from the sort of agonistic civil discourse, that there's a sort of like Whig penchant for neutrality that is treated as a virtue when really it's neutrality in service of a different power arrangement. And I think that's what he gets, Lash gets into when he's talking about the common schools and Horace Mann being like, well, we can't talk about religion or we can't talk about these things because they're too incendiary or whatever. What we need is we need to neutralize all this First of all, as if that's, um, he treats that, uh, Horace Mann does, as if uh, that's an assumed ethic everyone has um, and is the way to do things. Lash's point is that there's some part of society that needs a way to deal with controversy. Now, the big question I have when engaging with Lash on this, because he says, you know, uh, controversy is a good because it helps you try to figure out where you stand on certain things. There's an assumption that there will be a sort of discursive element where you look around your community and there are controversies and you figure out how to handle them and people and, and how you feel about that. And that's part of being in a democratic society. And I was just like, yeah, I know what he means in the nineties. It's harder to know what anyone means by that after Facebook. Yeah. I resonated too with a bit of the idea that you you don't become informed so that you can debate, you debate and thus you realize your need to become informed. I think if anyone's ever like posted on internet forums and then like trotted out some opinion that they had and then just gotten ruthlessly smoked, (laughs) they realized that it was important for them to be better informed so that the Mm -hmm. next time they wouldn't be embarrassed in front of everyone that they probably like know and want to like them to some extent. Right, which is different than being canceled. Yeah, no. 
you're still part of the community. Everyone's just like, you're also a dumbass. <laughs> and, but it's, you know, I, it was a good experience, even though it felt horrible at the time, because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I can't just say what I think and then expect that to go okay if I don't actually know anything. So it's important for me to start learning things, which is more or less something that has remained like, you know, a personal hobby ever since. It's just like learning about pretty random things as like strange moods overtake me to do so. And, you know, I don't debate as much anymore because I don't really find that fun or interesting uh, with most of the people who are available to do so with. But it's and the still platforms like, where you would do it, right? Like Twitter yeah. or Facebook or whatever. Yeah, because, no point. <laughs> no point because, you know, we're going to do at some point uh, a series on the social dilemma, the incredibly self-serving and overblown Netflix documentary about social media and uh, the movie um, We Live in Public about sort of the, I would say, the profit of a lot of this stuff from the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. And, and, and we'll get into this more about why this is different. But part of it has to do with something... John, I think you talked about with Olivier when we had him on, which was that these things thrive off of a type of controversy. They're not meant to become a place where you can sort that out. They're meant to harness and then exploit um, your most negative feelings. And it is not yeah. about being like, look, dude, like you're fucking out of line here, you know, and you still get to hang out. You know, because like if some dudes were fucking assholes in the Magic the Gathering tournaments I used to run, like... I couldn't like kick them out in that way, you know, like they would still be back next week. <laughs> um, uh, that's not how it, uh, not how it works for this stuff. So I think that's a, a sharp difference that we have now. Very, it was a really unusual circumstance and somebody became persona non grata. It was like not lightly done mainly because like who's interested in doing that? Like most people weren't. At that's the a lot of work. To like yeah. really kick someone out of some place. It really is. It was usually a response only when it, you know, very similar to like, I feel like this is just basic social stuff on some level. I, I think it's something I wanted to say. It was that like, we talk about it in relation to like democracy and agonism and stuff. But like on some level, pretty much every community of human beings has basically like functioned in some way similar to this. Yes. And that sort of includes that like outlawry is not a lightly handed out thing, you know, where you're banished and you just have to go live somewhere else now and like people can kill you if they want. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, this is pretty fundamental, I would say, like whether you live under the emperor or, you know, in right. a tribe yeah. or yeah. like whatever, wherever you're living, like these, these things are pretty fundamental. And so watching them disintegrate is a lot more alarming than just what is the future of democracy, even though that's definitely one of the important questions we have about it. It's not the only concern. Right. This is where you become, uh, to pull from Hayek, like rationally patterned to embody market ethics, Mm. which are implicitly, you know, against your will. It's just that you've been made to comply because of the structures around you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, he brings up Richard Rorty and Rorty's vision of society, which is men engaging in the central bazaar where they haggle all day long and you don't need to have anything in common to haggle except for a desire to, for money, I guess. But that at the end of the hard day of haggling, you go back to your private associations where, you know, you know, everyone who agrees with you, you all hang out together and then like you take comfort in that 
And beyond these little private circles, there is no greater coherence to society beyond like pure market relations. And that's, I guess, Lash's characterization of Rorty's vision of like a liberal society in our age, which is... Sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah, proving to be true in new and exciting ways. One of the other things that Lash brings up is that there, in response to this, there becomes a type of uh, particularism. I think the way that we recognize that now is largely like the flavor of identity politics or what have you. And that that creates an inability to see things in common, right? Those are the logical conclusions. And so like, again, the question isn't just like what's going to happen to democracy, which is a good question and a question that I'm interested in. It's like, what happens to a society when that goes away? And I mean, that's terrifying to me. Yeah, it's because he brings up, he would call like these third places, like sort of the constitutive social organ of like a neighborhood, which he would call a concrete particularism or particularity, where it's particular solely because it is a particular place with particular people and they kind of form something of a common culture together because they interact. And it's not going to be like any other place exactly. And Lash feels like that kind of concrete particularity not only can be integrated into a larger structure of like a common national sort of civic mode of engaging with one another, but that it's probably necessarily constitutive of that larger structure, at least when your options are that or like bohemian tech lords or something like you know what i it's yeah yeah like woke woke neo-feudalism in silicon valley yeah and so but what we have now which he would aptly characterize as like commodity capitalism is non-concrete like ephemeral non-material particularities which yeah you could describe them as like identity formation by and for advertising agencies to target you in different ways Um, which then get laundered into the public consciousness as like somehow fundamentally the building blocks of who you are. Yeah. It's sort of like this kind of communist or I'm this kind of, you know, like politics. Yeah. Yeah. So like sell me these books, like Amazon's like, okay, cool. Like you want these books then like, Oh, I see. You want to read, uh, (laughs) you want Sakai. You're one of those guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you want, uh, you want Ted Kaczynski. Like we've got, we've got that. We've got that. Actually it's for sale. It's for sale. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then that gets brought out into the, whatever we're calling like public discourse where it's like these it's unhelpful to call them part of identity but that's sort of the common nomenclature is that this is my identity it's like Voltron politics like you say or even if it's not political like do you ever go look I think there's like the aesthetics wiki where you can go look at like Dude, cottage yeah, core yeah. we were and looking like, at that in indie thinkers the other day yeah like all these different aesthetics uh, I exact same thing just sort of like what kind of things are sort of marketed to you directly, which not to knock that if you like that or whatever, like not to say like we hear it exhaust or bigger than that, or don't participate in that or anything like that. Just to say that there at least seems to have been in prior times, like more fundamental and substantive things that we would also consider to be kind of like the substrate of our lives and not merely things that relate to what we buy 
but that's kind of the only game in town. And so when you self-segregate into online communities based on your consumer habits and then adopt a series of political positions that are more or less just sort of grafted onto these consumer habits as like dogma, you know, and then you argue about that. Like, that's why there's no point. That's basically what Marvel is now. Yeah. Like that's Marvel. Uh, It's like, okay, we've got some like C tier uh, representation politics happening here that are embodied by immortal intellectual property at this point, like put together Mm -hmm. by some boardroom, you see yourself in it, you actively promote it by talking about it. And then like suddenly you find yourself posting about how we're currently in a fight against fascism and you're using a lot of Tony Stark famous arms dealer memes uh, (laughs) to do that. I think that's, that's sort of how that works. Yeah. The realignment that's happening there is that uh, the neocons win. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, in some way. But yeah, so that's that's particularism, at least one form of it. And yes. you can obviously fill in the blank in any way you want. There's a lot more versions of this, but it essentially constitutes, I guess, kind of the belief that like nothing more inclusive is possible just in terms of like we have to have groups small enough that we can all agree because that's the only way that we can talk to each other. And then our group will then try to influence things outside of ourselves, but in sort of like a manipulative way. Like, it's not like we're going to constitute a society together. It's well, like it's a we're going to take control. Way. It's a zero yeah. sum way. There's no public. There's only the particular. I think that's sort of the implication through Lash's thing is that like, yeah, you're going to have subgroups in a society. That's just going to happen. People have different interests, religion, work yeah. in different trade unions or whatever always been the case too yeah always been the case i think what he's particularly worried about is that there is a loss of the idea that there is a such thing as the public which Mm. is contested but includes all of these groups this is sort of where the compromise after world war ii really shows to lay the foundation for how all this happened because it starts to become very interested in this particularism as what makes America great, even in the case of Oscar Handlin, you know, the melting pot theory or whatever. Um, And there's no sense of like public goods or political economy that would address larger class issues. Instead, all of that sort of gets postponed while these Cold War fears of the masses propagate and everybody is just sort of putting off these conflicts until things really start to fall apart at the end of the 60s and 70s when we stop seeing that miraculous growth Mm. in the same way that we had before. And now suddenly there are all these problems and then there are all these unhelpful, flabby ideas in the wings about how we got there. And a lot of it has to do with particularities. Like it's a direct line from putting off those arguments to Reagan's welfare queen, you know? Yeah. Um, and also the idea that there is this zero-sum fight over the treasure box of goods that <laughs> live in the state, you know? That's not an idea of how to have a public, qua a public. That is an idea about how to win goods for your particular group from other groups that live in the same society that you live in. And it helps, at least it seems to me, that it would probably help maintain a consistent state of emergency 
because if you exist in something constituted along those lines, then you're never not under an internal threat because we're still existing within some kind of greater structure. So it's not just that people outside of that structure want to take things from us. It's that we exist within something where we're constantly in some kind of like idea warfare with every other group that threatens our group. And so thus, yeah, much is justified, much is required, and much is necessary that is perhaps unpalatable otherwise. But don't worry, we'll eventually get to that state where this isn't required anymore, just a little longer, which is, you know, kind of like the operating protocol for like liberalism post World War II in general. Mm-hmm. In the dynamic of a, stability um, yeah. of interest group politics. Yeah, definitely. So, Okay, we've talked about third places, um, A, because we both had an emotional interest in that, an autobiographical one, respectively. And I think it's important to see Lash's understanding of the crisis of democratic discourse um, broken up into different, let's say, sectors that are supposed to encourage or uh, would at least be the venue for there being a such thing as democratic discourse. So one of those are the third places that we've talked about. Another one is the press, which he gets into here. And this is, again, where he does some real anti-Walter Lippmann posting. If you remember from earlier in the book, and I think we talked about this in some of our earlier episodes on this, he talks about how uh, Lippmann thinks like, look, the press just has to do the data so that the experts can decide amongst themselves what to do best. It really doesn't need to explain to anybody what's going on in a real way. This is, again, the type of thing where it's like, this is a revolt of the elites because it's them being like, well, there's no reason to deal with these dirty fucking plebs. And besides, they're like, if they were actually good like us, they would care about what Matt Iglesias has to say in his new book, One Billion American. It's like, no, that's not how that should work. These institutions should serve the public. They have a duty, the press has a duty to make things clear to the people. That is not the business model of the NYT right now. The NYT is a weird hybrid of earnest Netflix documentary and The Daily Show. And that's down to its business structure. It doesn't really do, it's basically, there's a part of the NYT that's just a Xerox machine at Langley. And then there's part of it that are all reporters who wish they could be in Trevor Noah's writing room. That's it. Yeah, the, the BBC has been kind of going downhill for maybe a decade or so, but I always found it valuable, uh, maybe for two reasons. One was that it used to put on things that no one cared about because it had no reason. Like they did not need to care about ratings. So yeah. they could showcase weird art or like ancient history or whatever they wanted to. Didn't have to be watched, watch it or don't watch it. It's there because this is a public service. So we're promoting general public knowledge, like arts, culture, information, whatever. Um, We're just doing this because it's part of our mandate and the people who work here are interested in that. Mm -hmm. And so that was an interesting thing. And also, I feel like one of the common criticisms you used to uh, find of them, even back in like the thousands and the nineties was like, like, well, they're doing British Imperial news. So like, you know, that's not really good, but it was actually very comforting because they had one of the most solid and consistent lines on things that you could find out there. So I could read BBC because I wouldn't have to guess where they were going to come from on an issue. 
and I could read against the grain if I wanted, you know, like whatever mm-hmm. my personal interest in an issue was, I could at least rely on them institutionally to like provide me with a narrative that I like know what that is and I can look at it in a critical way, which is not always easy anymore. Well, right. And there's that insane thing where it's just like, oh, well, you know, it's like the fucking government. So, you know, like they're just going to be like so self-serving, which like, yeah, true. Uh, sadly, the private sector press in America is basically the government at this point. So it's yeah. not like we had this cool workaround that ended up working out for us in the long run, you know? <laughs> no, totally. Um, I mean, all you have to do is just go right now and like skim the headlines or whatever in rapid succession and then ask yourself like, oh, this is, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with what anyone in government is like interested in right now, I guess. Yeah. Or in business. I mean, that's why Amber Frost wrote that thing about why she reads the financial times instead of the New York times. And essentially the argument is because the financial times, a bunch of dead eyed capitalist psychos who know that politics is about not fucking up the count at the end of the day. And like, oh, totally. That's, and it's like, yeah, that's true. You know, like, <laughs> when you read those two publications, like one is giving you, even if it's not like a view you agree with, like the straight dope on what's happening. And the other one is trying to uh, basically morally weaken you with, I would say, facile, pathetic appeals um, mm. and circular argument. And Moral look, weakening I'm sh- is like so apt. Yeah. And I think, you know, by the way, like I do want to say this, I am sure that there are a handful of journalists at NYT who are hanging on by their fingernails, still doing decent investigative work that is getting like fucking buried on the website and in the print. And it sucks that that's what's happening to them. You know, the, my, my dark forecast is that uh, very soon we will start getting the binge-worthy documentaries about the intrepid reporters of the Trump era who really took the fight to the fascists by being stenographers for the CIA uh, with regards to Russiagate. You know, like beautiful. Yeah, that's really like what we're about to see. And I think Lash's point is that there needs to be arguments here in the press. Now, I don't know a lot about the like party machine press that he seems, frankly, a little bit nostalgic for in the Mm. 19th century. I'm less nostalgic for that now because we are living through a deeply partisan press cycle that is basically like party owned. Uh, Everybody knows what the alignments are. Uh, (laughs) At least our American listeners do. Probably our Anglosphere listeners do. But it's like, MSNBC, NYT, a few others on the liberal left, Fox, and a handful of others on the right. And you're appropriately siloed in between those. And nobody does any good like oppo research on their own side anymore. It's like Glenn Greenwald's yeah. point. Like you're, it's like, yeah, if you're a Democrat, you should just like assume that whatever the Republicans are up to is like shitty. And like, yeah, do investigative research on it. But you owe it to your own side to criticize it and make it good and to fight against it and to have this agonistic frame that inspires argument where people get to in their conversations in their daily lives, figure out where they stand in society, what they believe and what they want to see in their society. This is the point in some ways of the fourth estate. It's not just to neutrally print out the data. Like it's one of Robert McNamara's Vietnam fax machines and then whatever, you know, lanyards working on K street, read it, you know, and their antennas start clicking together and they figure out how they're going to offshore more jobs to China. 
because that's right now another feature of our press. It's just like, this is not for you. Fuck you, frankly. You know, that's what a lot of this stuff about like, you know, oh, there's so many people turning away from mainstream narratives. Like, why is that? I was like, man, like, where have you guys been for the last like 20 years? Like, do you remember the question of whether or not Iraq had weapons of mass destruction (laughs) and some articles in the New York Times about that? Yeah. Like, I'm still amazed whenever anyone like clutches their pearls about that publication. It's, I mean, that was like so uniformly discrediting or like, frankly, it was like 2008 never happened. Yeah. Like it should have been someone's duty to explain to the public what was happening. Like that should have been someone's fucking job. Yeah. And nothing, nothing happened. I have no memory of that. You know, I'm sure sure there were some people who were canaries in the coal mine or were doing diligent work and they were just not getting what they deserve. Yeah. You, you almost would think that you would have gotten something better out of like the Pravda than, than what we got. Like, even if it would have been completely false in some regards, there yes. would have at least been some form of address of, of the issue. And one of a great, actually a uh, great third place experience is coffee shop, like 1am. This guy is always sitting there with his desktop computer, which he like sets up. Oh, dude, hell always, yeah. This is some All Saints a, Cafe shit right there. The, the guy who wants to tell you ton. about how the CIA is shutting down Linux download parties. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. <laughs> you just walk up to him. You can be like, hey, what's up, man? He'll be like, hey, like, what do you want today? Operation Gladio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dude, I remember this guy. I remember this guy. Yeah. He would always have these downloaded Russia Today clips. It would never ah. be like, he would never show you anything streamed online. Usually it would already be like downloaded and placed into a folder <laughs> Dude, so that it would be like backed up for, you know, but like I got introduced to Russia today from him and I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, this is actually pretty chill. Like I am interested in the kind of, it's almost cathartic to see like a perspective. That's not the hegemonic one that you've been forced to like drink and vomit like your whole life. Mm-hmm. And people are right. Like, oh, you can't just seek out an alternate narrative and then trust it because it feels good. Yeah, that's irresponsible that's, too. I mean, that's frankly that's also a, a lot point. of what that's what also a lot of the media offers now too, because that's their insane. And that's the counterpoint. Yeah. Is that you're not saying anything because that's what you do too. You're just saying like you picked the wrong brand. Yeah. But it's not like you're offering anything distinct from that. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that Alex Jones and you know, like fringe blogs or whatever, like that kind of stuff is able to pick up steam, like QAnon. That all matters because they figured out that there's a huge unserviced market for you know, disaffected, emotional buttressing. Yeah, and disaffected people uh, who've been totally abandoned by these institutions that are supposed to serve them and give them a way into politics. Right. That's what these. That's what the press is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you the rhetorical and informational tools and investigative tools you need to engage with what you see happening in front of you. There's not ever going to be this moment where there are people that are totally like, I don't give a shit about what's happening in society. That never happens. People don't turn out to vote. There are people who don't give a shit about the minutia of politics and it's understandable why. And the answer isn't that it's boring, which it certainly is, but there are plenty of other things that are like boring that people are still interested. You know, I think it's that, there is, you know, there's nobody basically making this a part of anybody's life in any real way. And I don't think there can be right now because the way these structures work is that they're built to disenfranchise these people. 
So like maybe if you even had the best press ever, it like wouldn't matter at some level because like who the fuck wanted Joe Biden to be president and Kamala Harris didn't even win any delegates. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's a great picture of like, fuck you. Yeah. Just sit there and watch. Yeah. Yeah. Just sit there and watch. And I think that's also part of why like, of course, Trump crushed it per Matt Taibbi's point and his coverage of the 2016 election because he understood that it was all a fucking game show. And we've talked about that before, so I don't want to dwell on that too much. But like, totally. So I think we can summarize like Lash and we share this position with him, even if we're a little bit skeptical about how we think it could be implemented. We also have the benefit of being 24 years out from this book's publication about that the press sucks (laughs) and it doesn't serve anyone outside of particular slivers of its, you know, focus grouped demographics or whatever. And it doesn't create public discourse. It creates discourses that um, are partisan, but I don't think necessarily partisan in the way that Lash would have preferred, which was, you know what, honestly, I think that's just a confused part of his, his argument and I did not buy it at all. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you, if you're a regular person, you should never read the news at all. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a built-in idea that if I don't look at the news, I won't know what's going on. But I looked at the news the other day for like 10 minutes, and I felt so crazy, like, oh, so you agitated. Pissed. You were in the group chat, like, what the yeah. fuck? Like, for the next three hours, you were just like an insane Literally person. every article was like, why Trump is either a criminal or like mentally ill which was its whole own thing, like mental health professionals, psychiatrists willingly engaging. The death of the Goldwater rule. Yeah, yeah, the Goldwater rule, just like totally out the window. Like how can they have, I don't know, like no (laughs) self-respect as a professional to engage. Like I don't even understand why you would want to do that. Why would you agree to participate in something like that, which can never do anything for you as a professional psychiatrist or whatever? And it's only helping the like media vampires who are loving that you're doing this for them. It was a part of like, you know, uh, Alone said this in her last psychiatrist post, like, why do you believe that the New York Times deserves your writing for free? You know, Mm -hmm. like for the exposure that you're so happy to have, like there's a certain way that this stuff functions and it's not for you either as a producer or as a consumer of it. And if you, I just know too many people Um, of the age brackets kind of above ours usually who are legitimately being driven into like paranoia and insanity Mm -hmm. by a daily nonstop consumption of this stuff. It's like a legitimate public ill at this point and nobody should be looking at it. Like if you want to know what's going on, you can read some books and like occasionally hear about stuff from other people, you know, Mm -hmm. like look at a blog maybe or whatever, but like, please never consume the news again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we'll move there on to the next portion of what he sees and it's schools. And we've already kind of talked through some of his Horace Mann ideas about what happens at common schools or public schools for us, uh, how Horace Mann really succeeds in a lot of ways, more than most people ever do in their lives by getting public schools created and funded in the United States. However, we live downstream from some of the problems that were built in there, which is that these schools are meant to be so neutral 
that certain things can't be debated, which means they aren't necessarily good at generating citizens that know how to engage with these problems or understand them, and moreover, understand how to disagree in common and to think for themselves in that way. Now, I don't know. I mean, this is just such a fraught problem. I worked on Common Core curriculum. I can tell you that what the people who run that shit believe uh, is a lot like Horace Mann, um, except they're like woke now. So there's some huge contradiction going on. And I'll also say that they don't believe political economy. They literally believe that education is a one-stop shop for solving society's problems. And if we go back to sort of what we we're talking about, what Lash talks about with third places, that can't be true. Like you have to be able to learn a bunch of other shit about how to be a person outside of school. School is but one p- part of how you engage in the world. And now it's supposed to do everything. And that's supposed to be measurable. And you're not supposed to pay attention to the property tax bases that go into funding these schools. You're supposed to think, as these people did when I was working on on Common Core, that you could create a curriculum that would overcome all of those problems, which is nuts. And they also started to create like different standards for different types of students, which is self-defeating in and of itself, right? So I think a lot of what Lash talks about here in terms of what public school is supposed to do, he was unfortunately a prophet of some of these problems that especially after No Child Left Behind, put through under George Bush, only got worse. And the teaching to the test stuff has only made it worse. And there's always the false idea that there is uh, a non-ideological neutrality that you are going to experience when you're reading like what history of all things, you know, or what have you, like philosophy, not that that gets taught, or like literature that like art isn't about, not necessarily about controversy, but often entails it because it's dealing with what's at stake in the human condition. Yeah. And I I think even science too, to some extent, like that's one of the bigger things that honestly bothers me. The scientism. Yeah. Like, Oh, you're just learning science, which is not interpretive in any way, shape or form, which is, you know, so fascinating as an idea. You're downloading the truth through your eyes. Yeah. Which is one of the big problems with like, well, it bears out like that's sort of like the Lipman position, right? Is just that you can access the truth through science. But like, what does science consist of? A bunch of statistical methods and like data, and then the people who are interpreting them and how they interact with that stuff. Well, how do they interact with that stuff? And usually it's just to take something that they don't fully understand and use it as like a justification to get money or to like enact a program in government or in business to then do something that they already wanted to do. And maybe in the best case scenario, they actually want to look at like what they're generating in terms of projections or something. And this is like maybe mainly social science or things like that. But I mean, even biology, like it's fraught. I'm sure we could do like numerous future episodes just about philosophy of science, how utterly bankrupt it has been since like 1950 or 60. Yeah. Or like it still happens, but no one really pays attention to it anymore. Well, the, like the no one is really to that is like the Neil deGrasse Tyson masterclass. Yeah. Like nobody is interested in like the basic epistemological problems inherent in anything like this sort of enterprise, whether or not statistical methods are actually generating anything meaningful or useful, you know, that's relegated to like 
statistics departments and universities where the debate will never really leave that cloister. Yet it has such an influential role in our society that's just not well understood. Mm -hmm. And it's all built into, like, we'll have to have Mike back on. He can talk about undergraduate science education, probably ad nauseum, and how completely, like, wrongheaded it is in terms of basically just instructing kids to, you know, engage in constant model reality conflation and then believe, oh, like, you know, like those numbers and things that I read out of the book, that's just reality, like pure, unfiltered, crystal reality, like coming into my brain. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, gosh, they're barbarians. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, this segues into some of the discussions about higher ed that Lash wants to have, I think, because there is what he would see as a civic death of the humanities. And that happens in a few ways. There's sort of the pseudo-radicalism of basically all those weather underground people that like put a pipe bomb in a toilet in a police department, went underground for a couple decades, and then taught Barack Obama at whatever Ivy League or whatever Obama analog there is at, through whatever Ivy League tenure position they held down once they he uh, had a came great back. line. He had a great line about how, you know, they engage in radicalism and then clean up to claim their class prerogatives. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. So I think um, it works like this. At some point, there is a crisis of the humanities in the post-war era. And it's like, what, basically, how do we calculate the utils for this? And is this even hard to do? Is this a real thing? The humanities respond. You can read Chomsky on this too. I wish I could find the interview or the or, or the the thing he wrote on it. Um, maybe I will for the bibliography. But uh, where it tries to adopt this like hyper technical niche specific language that basically destroys its ability to communicate its ideas to the to the the public. In other words, it's a radicalism that in content and style is meaningful only to those who've been initiated in its rights. It's hard to see what's a human about those humanities after that, I think would be Lash's point. And then there is sort of the corporate takeover of the academy, which again is being exacerbated by COVID right now. You know, most of the major universities in America are real estate schemes that fuck over uh, non-tenured workers by making them grind themselves to death to teach woefully unhelped undergrads basic things that should be important to any society. But on top of that, it has also created this idea that like you have to go to college, not idea, this reality that you have to go to college to get a good job, which again, also from the beginning of Lash's book is about a sneering at manufacturing and working class life. Yeah, he talks about the way in which it is like a general liberal education is decoupled from like, you can either get that or you can go get vocational training, which may in turn, you know, grant you some access to like wealth. Um, Maybe you can even start your own business eventually once you have a trade and stuff like that, but then you can't go participate in like talking about Aristotle with people because that's not really for you. Like that's for a really small handful of people. Who aren't talking about Aristotle anyway. (laughs) Yeah, like no one's actually doing that. It's not for anyone anymore. But, you know, if you thought that that's what they did in universities, you would also know that you can't go there and do that. But then you'll go there maybe and realize they don't do that anyway. And you should never have gone if that's what you wanted from it, you know, unless you 
go to like one of the handful of places that still exist, not to get you any professional credentials, but just to encourage learning, which, uh, Right, which is unfortunately seen as only something that the um, incredibly uh, privileged can do. Um, those are usually small liberal arts colleges, and that's not seen as something that's part of the common experience, which is also what Lash is worried about. You know, when he talks about Frederick Douglass reading the 17th century English orators, I'm going to f- try to find this Douglass quote because it was gorgeous. I mean, he's really one of the best, one of the best writers that America has ever produced. That's just true, in my opinion. So in reading these guys, these 18th century masters of British oratory, Pitt, Sheridan, Burke, and Fox, quote, Douglas says, the reading of these speeches added much to my limited stock of language and enabled me to give tongue to many interesting thoughts, which had recently flashed through my soul and died away for want of utterance. But there's an idea that because of the particularism, because of the corporate takeover of the academy, because of the pseudo-rural radicals, etc., that Lash is not making the Harold Bloom closing of the American mind argument per se, that we don't read the canon enough and that's why everything sucks or what have you or why the academy sucks. What I think he's making a point that there has been, again, a particularization of society that can't participate in what I would say is the common stock of masterpieces generated over time that make the human world we live in to a large degree. As I would tell anybody, just because you're not interested in the tradition of the canon does not mean that the traditioner canon isn't interested in you. I guess I don't think we should really get drawn into some of the debates, but there wasn't it like Reed or something where a bunch of people were upset that there was like a required brief, like Western canon course or something. So there was a oh, lot yeah. of, there was a lot of like campus activism over that and like sit-ins or whatever. But I don't like, maybe, you know, that would be the Harold Bloom argument is that like we're the inheritors of like Occidental civilization. And so mm-hmm. we have to um, get into that. And I like that. And it's probably worthwhile if you feel like you're interested in why anything is the way that it is. There's something to be gained from going even that far back, certainly. But it's not like there aren't other books out there that are equal. The world is full of books. I think the problem isn't that, like, you know, we need to read more women. It's just that the world has a huge stock of incredible works that get to belong to anyone who takes the time to engage with them. And to yeah, particularize... Yeah, like read the Indian canon, yeah. read the Chinese canon, like read whatever you like, but just right. read something. And to overly particularize them is to rob them of their merit of being part of the humanities, which in itself should speak to how shared these things are. And it's very name. And instead, we get the tourist's idea of culture, as Lash calls it at the beginning of the book. And I think that's very sad. But what I didn't necessarily like about this chapter on pseudo-radicalism is that he says, you know, the real problem is corporatization. And then he spends a lot of time defending the canon. He's like, well, I'm not really defending the canon per se. You know, this corporate stuff is a big problem. And I'm like, it would be cool if you did more than just say that it's the bigger problem uh, and then rehash parts of Bloom and others, you know? Like, I would like to know more about what that actually looked like in the 90s so I could trace it to what it is now. I think Freddie DeBoer has just come out with a book called The Cult of Smart into a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, I would love to know what was going on then because 
the reality now is that you could equally characterize universities often as like sports organizations or real estate holding companies as much as they are like supposedly learning institutions. And yeah, I mean, we lived in Tallahassee together like that. Yeah. Town lives and dies by the Florida State Seminoles football season. Yeah. And to the extent that um, they participate in education, like it is largely in some ways made to directly manifest like a pipeline for different kinds of professionals, engineers, and technocrats to go place at like the top 500 companies in the country to continue running that machinery. Cause it's hard to, it's hard to dislocate like the, the canon problem or the humanities problem from the fact that it exists like in this institutional context that basically renders it sort of meaningless. Like it, there's no reason for anyone to do that in college because that's not really what it's for. Some people still believe that's what it's for because they, it either used to be for that, or at least they think it used to be for that. I guess depending on how far back you go, but like largely there's not really a place for that there. So to continue to sort of wish that there was or try to find a way for there to be is largely seeding the field that this institutional context is like non-negotiable. We just need a bigger place for like looking at Montaigne essays there before we go work in investment banking or something, which I think, like you're saying, it's largely missing probably the more important point to talk about something that's always, you know, like people can go read those books anywhere and they are doing that. And there's yeah, we a have million. a library system. You can get a library yeah. card. You can go check these books. Nobody's really like hiding this culture from you or whatever, yeah. or any culture there's, from you at this point. There's so many places as well online now and probably soon to be in real life, God willing, that we can like hang out with people who like to talk about this stuff, talk about it with them, read it together. What is it? Online great books. Um, yeah. I teach over there. Many other such places existing right now. Uh, if you're interested in like whatever it's out there for you. So it's not really that like access to this information is closed off from the people. It's more that institutionally, there's no real reason for you to engage in this activity. It does not benefit you in the market. So you have to have some other reason for doing it. And that's, you know, like the conversation really, to the extent that it's been about the fact that we aren't reading the right books, I think has kind of missed the point, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also part of what Lash is trying to say, is that there's a different structure here that is no longer interested in the public as such. And that that isn't a problem that is only because the Cokes have, you know, dug themselves into the academy and fund all the economics departments um, and stuff like that. Uh, it's also because the left academics who've secured tenure from themselves no longer see themselves as responsible to the public that in some cases puts them in those places. And that that exists in a larger market structure that the university participates in, which has to do with football teams that, only lose money except if you're one of the major coaches um, and exploits the shit out of the players that play. You know, I think, you know, people have seen. Yeah. And there's, I recently found this book. It's called through the Jade gate to Rome. And it's now a two volume. Um, it, part of it is a translation. I think of a Chinese work about the Silk road and Rome, like what they knew of it, wow. trying to get all their information together. And then a lot of it is appendices, like the whole second volume is appendices, just any sort of interesting information about the oasis cities that dotted the Silk Road, the relationship between 
the Chinese and them and this whole system of like pre-Western global trade, um, all getting into that. This is like the only book that really gets into that specific Chinese work and translation and also related things in this way. It was written by a guy who's a psychiatric nurse. No way. I think he was born in Canada and eventually ended up living in Australia. He just did this on his own free time because he's interested in it and he likes it. And it was so successful after its first run, like academically, that it got a second edition with two volumes. So you could increase the size of the appendices, uh, like widely well regarded by academics, even though this guy has nothing to do with the academic world and simply engages in research and scholarship that he finds interesting in the time that he has to spare. What else? Oh, God. Bullfinch's Mythology. Pretty sure mm. that guy was a banker. Did mm-hmm. the translations and reworkings just in the evening um, when he had the time. Or the guy who the guy who abridged Arnold Toynbee's 12 volumes of A Study of History into two volumes said he did it to relax in the evenings. That's <laughs> so amazing. That's there's, amazing. Yeah, there's room for this stuff, and it's out there, and it's taking place... Uh, the people Currently. who want to do it are doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That thing is really being stopped any more than it ever has been stopped. Right. I, th- ever. I think what we do have, however, is sort of, uh, for lack of a word, better word, a decadence of these institutions that create their own problems. Like, as we all know, the student debt problem is huge and real. Yeah. You know, and the fact, by the way, that comes with that, that you, it's hard to get a decent job without going into debt to get one of those is also a real problem and that any society interested in creating more equal conditions uh, for these people to meet and decide what the public good might be can't abide by such structures proliferating for very long. And it's not even like they're in service to some greater level of like scientific knowledge or anything. It's not not like we're, we actually have an aristocracy, a rule of the best. We have an oligarchy and it's not like we have an epistocracy because all these people are fucking stupid. Yeah. They just have like, you know, this is their form of self justification or whatever, but Mm -hmm. there was just like a big paper that was saying in light of COVID-19, it's easy to see now that the, um, the incentive structure for scientific publication is seriously broken and does not actually add anything to our knowledge so much as it encourages people to do like largely useless work in order to improve their career prospects. And, you know, this is not, this is an open secret. If it's a secret at all, it's something that's been talked about for like decades and it's probably only able to get a bigger hearing today because of the obvious systemic problems. But like, I guess that's sort of the false sense is that like, well, we've traded a lot of this like Renaissance humanist kind of tradition that we got that turned into like the enlightenment and into this. And we've given some of that away for like greater technical control and efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe one of the big false narratives about this. Um, It's just not true. We've just become more corrupt. and decadent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, The trade-off was bad. You know, it's sort of a, the creative destruction provided you could either ever measure something like that uh, has mostly been destructive. And I think it's one of the worst deals in the history of deals. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's, you know, there is this idea, you know, move fast and break things, creative destruction. There's a lack of regard for things as they exist. There's this idea that you can do whatever you want 
and on balance, it's always going to be okay. And that this is essentially an elite idea that is bipartisan, even on the left. Oh, it doesn't matter that these uh, people are burning down these like small businesses or whatever in this thing, because like fucking like, don't you understand that that's not how property relations work or whatever? It's like, well, I do understand that the big box retail sector is dying and has dying even more now that COVID has kicked into gear. And that's going to be true across a lot of these industries. So all these small businesses that are gone, you're like, well, yeah, whatever. What's the difference between them and a big box? I'm sorry. There's no big box coming. There's nothing that's going to replace that, which is why you need to be thoughtful about whatever you're going to go and do in the world. There are actual stakes here. And what Lash touches on, or maybe this is what I'm taking from Lash, is that there is profound irresponsibility that's become like the de rigueur ideology. One of the things that I appreciate about conversations with, I feel like most religious people, maybe of many stripes today, is uh, I remember one guy saying that he was profoundly worried about the fact that he was going to head into a professional career and accumulate wealth and one day be called to account for all of the wealth he held and what he didn't do with it or chose to do with it and how it kind of terrified him to have that responsibility. And I was like, man, I think you're going to be okay. Like (laughs) (laughs) That you even have that worry is like, that's beautiful. Like, I think you're all right. Like you're, you're a human being, you know, like things matter to you and you're worried about stuff in it. One of my favorite clips that came out of all of this were these people in Seattle trying to do an anarchist, like radical democracy thing that was basically like structuralist. And it's just in Deval, it just evolved into people screaming at each other. Of course, because of course it did. Yeah. And that's funny at some level because you can laugh from a place of superiority, like, don't you know, or isn't that stupid? But then when I thought about it, I realized that I wasn't necessarily sure how I would have implemented any structure into that. Whether or not it would have been worth doing that is another question. And then that felt like the real gut check. So I was like, wow, I have not grown up in a world where I've witnessed a lot of those structures and how to implement them and what that looks like. And that was a major worrying thing for me. And I think that speaks to the decline in democratic discourse and the way in which uh, since the post-war era, not just neoliberalism, which is not a radical break from what was going on during the post-war consensus, but a continuation and solidification of some of the fears of the masses that took place there, is that that's what it's like to live downstream from that. I don't know how to come back from that. And that is why nothing feels possible. So thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe out there.